following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, friends, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy, the second letter of Paul to Timothy this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 7 as our text for this morning of chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. But I would like to start at the beginning of the text, starting in verse 1, and we'll just read through verse 7 this morning. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame of God, which is, sorry, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, brothers and sisters, we've seen over the last week an introduction into this beautiful letter. We got to see the kind of five W's, right? The who, as we looked at who wrote this letter, Paul, obviously, the, the apostle of Christ Jesus, as he says, to Timothy, his beloved child in the faith. We get to see his intentions of the letter, this desire that Timothy, as he goes into this ministry after Paul's coming death, would do so with passion, with fervor, persevering in this gospel, finding his strength in this gospel, finding a love that's only found through the gospel. We saw the where as we looked at the reality of Timothy being still in Ephesus, ministering to the church there as Paul is in Rome, imprisoned, awaiting his coming death, as I said. And then we talked about the differing key elements of the text. And as we then come out of these first two verses where we see this classic introduction, this classic Greek introduction, where Paul makes it known who's, who's writing and who he's writing to, and he leaves with this prayer and this words of blessing. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He then dives into what we can call the meat of the text. We get to kind of get into the body of everything that he's going to say. 
And so as we dive into our text this morning, I invite you to see three overarching points. First, we're going to see remembering God's goodness as we look at verses 3 and 4. And then in verse 5, we're going to see recalling Timothy's faith. And then verses 6 and 7, we're going to see revitalizing God's gift. Those are kind of our three overarching points for this morning. And so let us dive right into verses 3 and 4 as we look at remembering God's goodness, our, our first point for this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read those again for us. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Thanksgiving prayers, as we see starting this little section, were common in letters of the time. And they're common even in Pauline letters. We see something similar if we just flip back a few, um, a few letters to Corinthian, or, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see something similar. We see 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 1 Flipping all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 8, he starts off, First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for all of you, because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And he goes on to give thanks to God and to say how he longs to see the people of Rome. We see this happening in Philippians and Colossians, and this is a common, common trait of Pauline letters. And we come to something very similar here than in 2 Timothy. He starts this section by saying, I thank God whom I serve. Paul has come out of this introduction that we see in the first two verses and dives right into some real deep theological truths. It almost seems something that we could pass up. We could just kind of gloss over and say, well, of course, right? Paul thanks God and whom he serves, right? This God that is his God. But notice how he starts it. This, this is far more in-depth than we even take it to be. It has more meaning than we could ever imagine. Who is Paul's object of thanksgiving? God alone. God alone. He doesn't thank anyone else. He doesn't even talk to Timothy as if he's thankful for Timothy at this point. He doesn't even say, I'm thankful for the work you're doing in Ephesus on my behalf. No, he says, I thank God whom I serve. The object of Paul's thanksgiving is God and God alone. As we looked at last week, Paul was called upon this road to Damascus. He was going there to persecute the church. And he is called out of darkness and into the light of the gospel. His wicked ways of being a Pharisee, persecuting those that followed the way, those believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a very one very moment... He is struck and he is turned to follow the one he once persecuted. Talk about transformation. The one that would have probably just happily killed with his own bare hands because he was so fervent in this belief of Judaism and this belief that those that were following the way were some off-sect that was trying to ruin Judaism, that was trying to ruin the authorities, that was trying to go against everything that he had believed and known. 
And in one second, in one moment, everything is changed. However, God didn't just stop in saving him. Thankfully, God did save Paul, right? Because without that, who knows where this ministry would have gone? Who knows how the word of Christ would have spread? But it could have stopped right there. He could have saved him and said, stop persecuting my church. Stop persecuting me. Perfect. Done. He saved a bunch of lives in that very moment. But that's not where it stops. That's not where the story ends. God calls on Paul to serve as an apostle to the Gentiles. Remember what God says to Ananias about what Paul would be called to do in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. He says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul could have just as easily been saved and could have been prevented from doing any more damage. But instead of just stopping the damage, he takes it to another level. God uses him then to expand his church, to expand his people, to bring this blessing that we all now get to share in. This blessing that came from the forefathers before him, which we'll look at. As we also saw, Paul suffered greatly, barely grasping on to his life at times. However, in the midst of his final imprisonment, as he's sitting there, having suffered so much, he looks upon the Lord, this Lord who has called him out of darkness, this Lord that has allowed him to suffer so greatly for him, this Lord who has given him this beautiful but horrendous and scary and difficult task. And he says, I thank this God, this God who has called me into his service. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. Paul is not pointing to his father or his grandfather here. When he says his ancestors, he's not even talking about those in his immediate family. He's pointing to history. He's pointing back. And he says, I am following the lineage of those that have been faithful to the Lord from the beginning. He's linking back to all the Old Testament is connecting to those that had followed in the promises, the ones that had made known these promises that would then be fulfilled in Christ. Acts chapter 24, Paul actually says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way, talking about those, this belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Paul says that this is not just a sect. This is not just some offshoot. This is not just some new thing like we see in our world today, some new age thing or some Buddhist thing or Hindu or any of those things. He says, this is following the same God that I have believed since the beginning. The, the God that I would have happily laid my life down for. He's like, this is the same God who sent his son to fulfill all of the promises, to fulfill the law, to fulfill everything that was written by the prophets. It was perfect that we actually read Hebrews chapter 11 this morning because 
This is what he's talking about. It's by faith. He's following in those same footsteps of all those that had followed by faith. Abel. He talks about Enoch. He talks about Noah. He talks about Moses. Abraham. So many that had died in this faith. And that's what Paul is talking about as he says, as did my ancestors. He's connecting back to these forefathers in the faith. And he says, I am serving this same God. This is the same God who had called the prophets. This is the one that has called me now. And he says, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. Paul is looking back on his life and his ministry. You can just imagine you're sitting in your prison cell. You're sitting in this final time. We think about this as people lay on their deathbeds. And the question becomes, what do they think about? What are their regrets? I saw an article not too long ago, actually, that had a woman who worked in hospice care. And she was a doctor. And she said, here's the things that most, like most people think about as they're coming to their dying hours. If they're young, they think about all the things they didn't do. But if they're old... They say, I've lived a good life. I'm okay. I'm comfortable. I'm all right with leaving. And so you think about that. And you think about where Paul is. He's lived a good life, you could say, in many ways. A very challenging life, but a a fruitful life, a fruitful ministry. And what does he think about? He's not thinking about whether or not he's lived a good life. He doesn't think about whether or not he's missed out on something. He doesn't think about what should have been done or what could have been done or what would have been different if he hadn't have done this. He doesn't even think, well, man, if I had never gone on my way to Damascus, who knows what would have happened? No, he says, with a clear conscience. He looks back and he says, I can have a clear conscience. Does this mean that he hasn't sinned? Does this mean that... He is sinless by no means. We obviously know that's not the case. However, as Paul looks back on this ministry, as he looks back on this life, he says that with a clear conscience before God and before man, he can thank God in whom he served. Paul knew that the sins of his past were forgiven, even the sins of the present He could respond then in effect before God and before man. I can say that while I am not perfect, I am living in humble submission and holiness before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we should all be able to say that. So if you're young or if you're old, when you get to your deathbed, giving the opportunity to think back on your life, you can say with a clear conscience. I respond to the Lord and I say that I am living in humble submission and holiness before him. We as believers should have a clear conscience. If we don't, that means that we're probably living in some form of hypocrisy. We're living in a sin that we haven't confessed. We have tried to sear our consciences as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
Last year, as we looked at this, we saw that it said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. But no, Paul encourages us as believers and encourages Timothy, even in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that we must hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And it is because of this clear conscience that Paul then continues and he says, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. This reminds us of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We see something similar in Romans chapter 1 and verse 9 that we looked at earlier. Paul remembers Timothy in his prayers, not just here and there, but as he says, constantly. So the question becomes, what does this look like? Is Paul always and only praying for Timothy? Well, we can know that's obviously not the case, right? Because he had also promised to the Thessalonians. He had promised to the Romans that he was praying for them constantly. We also know that Paul was active in the preaching and teaching ministries. So we can assume that he didn't just spend his whole life sitting in prayer. Sitting in a room, secluded from everyone, living this life of quote-unquote contemplation and prayer. No, that's not the case. So how do we understand this? Does this mean that Paul is a liar before us right now? That he shouldn't have a clear conscience? By no means. Paul's life, as is the life of every Christian, or should be the life of every Christian, is one that is characterized by prayer. As Paul sits in his imprisonment, we can assume he was spending much of his time in prayer. But it wasn't just that. Because throughout his life, he has been constant in prayer. His whole being was that of prayer and intercession. As we know, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he says in chapter 6, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. He also says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So Paul is not saying something that is not true. Rather, he's speaking of what we should all know to be true of the life of a Christian. And so I encourage you, is your life that of prayer? Is your life that of one who is interceding? One that is offering up thanksgiving to the Lord? What does that look like for us as believers today? It's easy to think of Paul and to say, well, he was sitting in prison, so... What else are you going to do with your time, right? But there's something about us, right? We're living in this day-to-day. We're going out into this world where there's so much going on all the time. We have jobs and we have families and we have children and we have all these responsibilities. So how do we understand this? And my question to you becomes is, well, when do you pray? Are you praying before meals and that's about it? Do you wake up in the morning and you 
pray to the Lord and you give thanks to the one who has allowed your eyes to open. So frequently, especially when we're tired, it's easy to be like, oh no, why am I awake right now? But that's not the response that we see from Paul and that's not the response of a believer. Our response is, Lord, thank you because you have allowed me to wake up again this morning. Whenever you go to interact with any person, especially in difficult times or people who are needing love and support and care, do you pray? Do you seek the Lord and ask him that his will be done in this situation? When it's a quiet time, when you're driving or when you're sitting at your desk at work or sitting in your home, do you think to yourself, Lord, help me? Help me to honor you. Help me to live according to your word. Help me to do all that you have commanded me to do. Friends, this is the call upon our lives. This is what it looks like to have a life that is one of prayer, that is totally engrossed in the reality of prayer and constant communion with the Lord, seeking that his will be done, seeking that his spirit is active. And Paul continues here, as he says, As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Paul remembers the tears of Timothy, which we don't really understand what that means in the sense of, was it the last time that Paul was with Timothy and he saw the physical tears, which is possible because back in Acts, Paul talks about leaving the elders in Ephesus and says there were tears basically being shed by all. So it's possible that he's talking about this final time seeing Timothy as he left him in Ephesus to go on his way to Macedonia. Or maybe it's because Timothy in his writings to Paul, we can assume that Timothy also wrote back to Paul, shared the struggles of ministry, shared the struggles of this work that he had been left to do, shared the fears and the concerns that he had for the church in Ephesus. Well, either way, Timothy's tears, Timothy's sorrows, Timothy's sadness made Paul long to see him. Knowing that being united with Timothy would bring joy to his heart. Hence why then he goes on in chapter 4 of this letter to say, Do your best to come before winter. What an incredible thought though about the fellowship within the body. How do you feel about being around the body this morning? Does it bring you joy? Do you long to see one another? Or is it something you do because that's what you're supposed to do? But not something that really matters much. If you miss a week or if you miss them, well, whatever. It's okay. Not a big deal. Friends, I invite you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, be known by your love for one another. That's how we're supposed to be known as believers is by our love, right? we may then echo Paul and say our hearts are truly filled with joy when we see one another. Let us follow suit of Paul here. Let us echo these same things. Let us be able to say that how I long to see you so that my heart may be filled with joy. That's true communion. That's true relationship. That's what our desire should be. Throughout the week, we should be longing for those opportunities to gather once again. We should be longing for the opportunity to come on Sunday to worship together. 
because of the fact that we're coming around his words, yes, but also because we can then build each other up because this is how the Lord has intended it, that the church gathers. In these first two verses, we've seen how Paul remembers God's goodness. He gives thanks to God who saved him and who called him to serve. He prays to this God who he knows will answer him, that hears him and answers prayers. And he recalls the beautiful gift, this gift of God's goodness in Christian fellowship that God has indeed gifted us as he thinks upon his protege, Timothy. Let us turn our attention now to verse 5 as we look at our second point, recalling Timothy's faith. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. As we discussed last week in our introduction to 2 Timothy, Timothy was a product of a mixed marriage. His father, an unbelieving Gentile, a pagan, and his mother, along with his grandmother, who were Jews who had came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This resulted in a sincere faith, as Paul says, that was found in his mother and his grandmother as they saw Christ as being the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. We'll look at chapter 3 in a few weeks, and we'll see in verse 15 as Paul speaks more on this, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Talking about those Old Testament writings. Talking about all the promises of the Old Testament. So without diving too deep or getting into spoilers before we get to chapter 3, we can see that Timothy was taught the sacred scriptures. It would have been these Old Testament writings. It would have been all these promises that had come in all of the different covenants. From the creation covenant to the Noahic covenant, to the Mosaic, to the Abrahamic, to the Davidic, all of these promises that were coming and would be fulfilled in Christ. These women, Lois and Eunice, his grandmother and his mother, having heard the promises of the Old Testament, expectingly awaited the coming of the Messiah. And when they heard of Jesus Christ, they saw it. They saw the truth. They knew that he was indeed the one. He was the one that would fulfill the promises of old, the ones that they had grown up on, the ones that they had been longing for and looking for. Think about the joy that that would bring. Growing up, see, it's different for us because if you're a believer here, you've known the gospel, you've known about Christ as the Messiah, but think about them hearing all these Old Testament promises, looking for this one who would undo the damage that was done in the garden. The one that would take everything that had been turned upside down and turn it right again. The one who would come and crush the head of the serpent and put an end to the tyranny of sin. This is what they were longing for. This is the one that they were awaiting, hoping for. And then they heard him proclaimed. They heard somebody say, Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who fulfills all of the promises of old. And they said, that's him. That's the one. This is the one that we have been looking for. And they received a, gen received a genuine faith from the Lord. And this was the same faith 
that then characterized Timothy. This was not just a case of being brought up in the faith or being from the right family, but a faith that permeated Timothy. It was what he was known as. He wasn't known as just Timothy. He was known as Timothy, this believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's how he was characterized. It's who he was known as. So the question becomes, who are you known as? Because this is what he's saying. This is the sincere faith that permeated who Timothy was. I want to reemphasize this essentialness of the statement. Timothy was not just a product of a faithful home. And he was, quote unquote, a believer who had been saved. No, he was sincere in his faith. Paul makes that very clear to us. This was a sincere faith. This is something that we must encourage our children and encourage one another that there is something called a sincere conversion. There is something that happens when somebody becomes a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Justin and I were just talking the other day about this. Is It almost seems as we see scandals happening in the church, as we see people falling away from the faith, it almost becomes disheartening at times. Because we think, is there no, is there no one that's seeking the Lord truly, desiring Him? And we look at Timothy and we can see a man who truly desired to honor God. Let us be counted as those who follow in his footsteps. Let us be counted as ones who had a sincere faith. What do we know about Timothy as a whole? He was young. He was seemingly shy. First Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to him, Let no one despise you for your youth. But set, the, uh, but, set, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. However, one thing that cannot be said about Timothy, being shy and young, yes, he wasn't faking it. He was a genuine and sincere believer. Paul believed in that faith of Timothy's. He was confident in Timothy's abilities and in his faith and in the gifting that the Lord had given to him. Hence his exhortation here to Timothy. Continue in this ministry. Hence the whole reason for this letter. Persevere in the gospel. Stand firm. Fight. Continue on, no matter the cost. As I was reading through this text this week, I kept kept thinking about the importance of truly encouraging one another in the faith. Especially how important it is to have someone who believes in you and in your calling. Not just speaking about the preaching and the teaching ministry. That's wonderful and it's a blessing and it's great to have somebody do that. But what is your gift? Whether that's hospitality or service or love or care for one another. Generosity. Whatever your gifting may be that the Lord has given you. It is essential that we build one another up. Provide guidance as we pursue the way in which the Lord has blessed us to glorify Him and to care for His church. Friends, I invite you as you see one another, especially for those of us who have been in the faith longer, let us encourage those that are new to the faith, building them up, encouraging them, 
helping them to identify the ways in which the Lord has blessed them and how they can use those for his glory, glory first and foremost, and then also for the good of his people and his church. So we've seen Paul's remembering of God's goodness. Now we've seen him recall Timothy's faith. And we come to our final point for today, revitalizing God's gift. As we look at verses 6 and 7. Friends, I invite you to hear these verses again. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. For this reason, what is the reason he's speaking of? He's talking about Timothy's sincere faith. Paul knows that because Timothy has a sincere faith, which is a, uh, which is a product of of a sincere desire to honor and glorify God, he has a sincere faith. Timothy is told by Paul then, I remind you, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Because of your sincere faith, I remind you. Remind is not to say something that Timothy didn't know or that Timothy had forgotten all about. No, it's to bring to the forefront in Timothy's mind something that was already there. The Greek word here used is similar to saying to kindle up or to inflame one's mind, to strengthen, to build up. It's literally saying, keep the fire going. Don't let it burn out. Take the areas that seem to die out, that have seemed to die out if there are any. And kindle them anew. Fan those flames. Build up the fire. But he's not talking about a one and done kind of thing. This isn't a one and done kind of deal. This is not fan into into flame and then walk away. For those of you that have ever been camping or ever built a fire in your house, you know this is the case, right? If you build a fire... And you walk away, what happens? It burns out. Eventually it can't go any further. It's used up everything that you've given it. No, it's an ongoing process. It's something that has to be tended to and maintained and built up and continue to be stoked with air and with wood. It's something that has to continue to be kindled and added to. But what is this gift that he's talking about? Paul says the gift of God, but what is it? Well, commentaries will lay out three areas that this, or three ways that this could be understood. First, if we're looking into the letters of Paul to his fellow laborers in the ministry, we only see one other reference, and that's in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of the elders laid their hands on you. So this would probably mean mean something like being linked to ordination or to the office of elder. That's the gift he's talking about. Secondly, it could mean something like the general gifts that are given to all believers for service and ministry in the church. Because literally every person who becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who's been called by God has a gift. Every one of you, if you're a believer here this morning, has a way that you have been called to serve. 
Or finally, it could mean simply, but beautifully, the spirit as given at the point of conversion. All of these possibilities seem plausible. However, it seems that Paul is most likely speaking to Timothy's specific gift for the ministry that he received at his ordination. However, how was Timothy to fan that flame? How was he to ensure that the gift of God does not die or lose its luster by relying on the Holy Spirit whom he received at conversion? So in a sense, we kind of get a mingling of all three of those possibilities, right? Because yes, it talks about this gift that was given at his convert or at the laying on of the elders this gift where he's been called to be an elder to be ordained into this ministry yes we're talking about his specific gifts of ministering to the church as a preacher and teacher and yes we are talking about the spirit that is given at conversion so we get the sense that he's talking about the multiple areas He indeed is speaking to Timothy's gift, but he's also speaking to the Holy Spirit that is required. It's required for him to rely on for this ministry if he desires to do God's will. He says, for God has given us a spirit, or sorry, I apologize, I just totally passed up right here. And he says, the question becomes, he said, but by the laying on of my hands, and how do we understand that, right? Because that seems to throw a wrench. Everybody says, well, If he laid his hands on him, that can't be the spirit in conversion. Well, does that mean then some kind of special gifting that came only through Paul's hands? Well, no, I don't believe that's the case. I think hence why he's speaking of a multiple kind of trifold thing here. He is talking about the spirit that was given. But he's also talking about that confirmation of his calling to ministry as the elders and as Paul laid their hands on him for this ministry. We see kind of a trifold area where Paul is speaking to every aspect of that. And he continues. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of love. I'm sorry, but of power and love and self-control. God has not given a spirit of fear. Before we dive into that, I want to be clear that the word here in Greek is delia meaning timid or cowardly or shameful. It's not a good thing. The spirit of fear is not a good thing. There's a healthy fear that all of us have, right? You walk towards the edge of a cliff and there's this healthy sense of fear to stay a certain ways back, lest you fall. There's a healthy fear of not eating something that you know to be poisonous because you know that it can cause you to be sick or to die. There's a healthy fear as we put our seatbelt on as we drive, right? There's all these senses where there's a healthy fear. There's also the fear that the Lord himself gives us. A fear of him. The Lord says that his desire is that we do fear him. We have a sense of reverence and awe that we fear his wrath. And that we seek a way out of it. Proverbs 9.10, one of the, probably the most famous of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there is a sense in which fear is a good thing. But we're not talking about a good fear. We're talking about a, a horrible, shameful fear. A fear where it's all about being timid and cowardice. Being afraid 
of man. For God has not given a spirit that is timid or cowardly or shameful. Paul has said something similar in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We have not been given the spirit of fear where we fall back into the law, fall back into things that are not God's desire for us. While these are not exactly the same thing, we definitely understand how the spirit of God impacts the life of a believer. Notice what Paul does here. He takes the previous statement in Romans addressing slavery to the law and being afraid of breaking free from the law to live in this new covenant and applies the same principles to the fear that Timothy was facing. We see something similar even in the Old Testament about who God is. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Similar to Joshua, who could count on the Lord being with him. And therefore, he had no reason to be fearful. Timothy can count on the same spirit, the spirit of the Lord being present, and therefore should not have any fear. We can be thankful that these words hit home, right? Because as we talked about, if Timothy did indeed die the way that church history has it, he definitely did not die in fear. He stepped out in faith to rebuke those who were worshiping pagan gods. So the Lord has given us not a spirit of fear. The spirit that the Lord has given us is one that is of power and love and self-control. It's apparent that God would not give us a spirit of fear because that's not in the nature of God. We can be certain we are when we are timid, when we are fearful of man, it is not because of the Lord giving us a special gifting in that moment. The Lord doesn't give a special gift of fear and timidity and, and shame and cowardice. That's not a gift that comes from God. That is a gift that we give to ourselves. That's something that we do because we're afraid to step out in faith upon the Lord who says he is with us always. The same Lord that said, see, this is as Paul is writing this, and he says, God doesn't give you a, a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self control. It's the same spirit that's given to us. This, this cowardice, this fear, occurs when we look at ourselves and our own abilities. Trust me, every Sunday that I step up to the pulpit, you can feel it. You can feel the tension. You can feel the. The building, as we drive to church, sometimes my wife will be like, how are you this morning? And I can say, I can feel the, the anxiousness a little bit. You can feel the weight. But when we look to God, we know who our God is. And we know that this is not a God who gives us fear, except for fear of him. And that fear of him leads to a desire to serve and to honor and to glorify him. That's the God who empowers us. So let's break down these, these giftings that he talks about. God's Spirit does give us certain things. It says power, love, self-control. The word power in Greek is dunamis, which means energy or force. It's the same word that gives us dynamite. 
power. How do we understand this in light of what we see? And how do we understand it, right? Because power in our world is so frequently used for destructive ways. It's ineffective. It's to rule over with some authority. God does not give us a destructive power, a power that is out of control. Rather, he gives us a power that is constructive, that is productive, that is effective. But to what end? To what purpose? Why would he give us that? Especially because we're so prone to take little bits of power and boy, do we grasp onto them hard and do we abuse them. And he says that we might use it not for our own gain or our own purposes, but rather to accomplish his purpose, to bring him glory. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God does not give a spirit of power that we might abuse it. He gives us a spirit of power that we might use it for his glory. Love. Agape. Selfless love that works towards the best of the one loved. It's not conditional. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love, it's the same love, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is an ongoing and a constant love. It's a love that says, I will give of myself for you. I will give myself for you. That's what God did. He gave of himself for us. And then when we, are poor, when we receive the Spirit and that love is poured into us, then our response back is, I will give of myself and everything that I am and everything that I have to serve you. That's the love that comes from the Spirit. This is the same love that Christ talks about when he says that he would lay down his life for his friends. No greater love does one have than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. John chapter 15 and verse 13. Brothers and sisters, as we talked about earlier, when we were briefly talking about fellowship, we are called to be known by our love. We are measured by our love. If we are tied up in love for ourselves, if we are tied up in love for me, then we'll not give of ourselves to others, and especially not to God. But if we're tied up in love for God, then we desire to serve him and care for his people and his world And so we'll do whatever. It puts to death every aspect of pride. It puts to death every aspect of my own self-desire, my own self-will. Because my will doesn't matter anymore. My desire is wholly and solely to serve him and him alone. And to love him and him alone. And to respond to him with the same love that he he gave to me before I even had a chance Before I even could say anything. God didn't ask. Do you want the Messiah? He gave his son to die on a cross for us. And then all we do is respond in turn. And say Lord I give of myself. The way you gave of yourself for me. 
I know I can never do it perfectly, but take, take as you will. And finally, self-control or a sound mind, discipline. Self-control points to this ability to have authority over oneself in every area, every aspect of your life. It allows the believer to be ordered in his life. Wherein the believer's life is one where godly wisdom characterizes everything, every aspect. When this occurs, our lives are devoted to our calling. Namely, living out this great commission. Not just in our words, but in everything that we do. Because self-control has taken over. We're not given over to the central passions of our lives. We're not given over to the things that we desire. But we're given over to the things that the Lord desires for us. These three things, power, love, and self-control, belong to every believer. That means if you're a believer here this morning... They belong to you. These are not things that we are born with. No, what we're born with in our fallen state is corruption and weakness and a desire to have power that we might control every situation, that we might rule over our own destinies instead of the power that God gives and that he bestows upon us. Instead of love, we have anger and hatred towards one another and towards God. And instead of self-control, we have sensuality and a proclivity towards giving of ourselves for our own desires, giving into whatever we want, only doing things out of a desire to please oneself. So this is not what we're born with. This is the gift that comes from God. This is especially important to Timothy as he is called to be a good witness as we read earlier before the church. He says, don't be, don't be afraid of being young, but be a good example. Be a good witness before the church. As he felt this weight of being a younger man ministering in Ephesus, he could look and say, but I am going to be a good witness. I'm going to have a clear conscience before the people I'm ministering to. As he faced the many challenges, he needed self-control to be able to handle his fears and his worries. He needed to be able to act based on what was true versus what he felt. I was sharing that with someone this, this week. As part of us acting in wisdom is acting based on what we know. Who do we know God to be? Why would we act in any other way than what God has revealed himself to be? If we are believers and we truly believe that our God has the best for us, why would we act in fear? Why would we act in ways that don't please him? Why would we act as if we know better? Because we should know that our God is in control. Our God desires our best. Our God will do his will because he is sovereign. And we should just be able to say, Lord, let me do your will, not mine. So instead of making rash decisions and hurting ourselves and others, let us instead call to mind the reality of who our God is, that we might live according to his word. So to recap those, power to be effective in service to the almighty God, love to respond rightly to God and 
to his people and to others in this world, his creation and self-control, to have every aspect of our lives be in accordance with his will. So as we close out this section of our text, I want to encourage, encourage you with the same words that Paul encouraged Timothy. If you are a believer here this morning and you're listening to this and you have been saved and you have been given the spirit of God, then I can echo Paul in saying, for this reason I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. For God gave you a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Brothers and sisters, these things are true of everyone who is a believer who is walking in the Spirit. You have indeed been given power, love, and self-control. This is a means that has been given to you to put to death sin, to help you battle sin. Been given power, not only to battle sin, but to have strength to go out in your calling. Every one of us has been called to the Great Commission to proclaim the gospel to the nations, the good news of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came on this earth, who lived the perfect sinless life, died on a cross in our place for our sins, was buried, rose, and ascended, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We have been given love that we are called to then use first in response to God, but then in response to one another. Especially as we share this gospel. What a true sign of love, right? Bringing the truth of the gospel to souls that without it would die and sit under the weight of God's wrath for eternity. We've been given self-control that we might not only battle sin, but live lives that are pleasing to God. And then we can echo with Paul that we have a clear conscience. We're living in humble submission and holiness before the living God. And before one another. As we close, I encourage you to take these words to heart. Fan the flame. This is an ongoing process. This is not something that you can do once, here and there. This is continual nourishment of this gift of God. He doesn't add wood. We don't add wood to a fire and then just expect it to burn forever. No, we don't plant water a plant one time and expect it to survive for eternity. We don't even do that with our own bodies. I didn't eat breakfast this morning and then walk out and say, well, I'll never eat again. I'm good forever now. That's not how we act because we know that's not how things work. We must fan the flame of faith. We can't just go on one time. It leads to disaster, to death. Many times we find ourselves caught up in all kinds of troubles and sins and neglect of our duties Because we have failed to fan the flame, to nourish the gift. This gift that God has given us in salvation. The spirit that is within us. And how do we do that? First and foremost, we look not to ourselves, but to God alone. For it is only through God's power that we can even do any of this. Secondly, we must rely on God's word as our means of knowing God and being built up for the ministry, whatever that ministry is that he has called you to, but especially to the ministry of sharing God's word, this good news. Third, prayer. For we see that Paul's life was one of prayer, and through prayer he found God's sustainment in every challenge. If God could sustain Paul in some of the most 
horrendous and painful and excruciating things that he experienced, why would God not sustain you in your day-to-day walk? Fourth, through fellowship. Brothers and sisters, it saddens me to know that people take the gathering of the body so flippantly. They take it or leave it. Oh, I'll come once in a while. Maybe I'll visit. We'll see how it goes. Whatever happens, happens. However, God has used this as a special means for us to bless one another, to build one another up, to encourage one another as we go back into this battlefield. As we all know, or as if you don't know, I'll tell you now, we've been commissioned into a war, into a battle when we become believers. And we're going into the battlefield day in and day out. Part of our time here and being built up by one another, by gathering around the word, by singing and praising God, is it's like a refuge from the battlefield. It's like going back to base for a brief moment to get built back up to then go out into the battle again. And those are just a few ways that we can do so. There are others, obviously, singing. But my encouragement is that we as believers never, ever neglect our calling and this need to fan the flame of faith.